1053 Main Street Gallery and Fleischmann's. Designed as a space to support a vibrant and active artistic community nestled within the Catskill Mountains. Presenting Motel, a mixed media installation of politically inspired work by artist Dan Herlin based on a puppet play about a young woman coming to the U.S. for the first time on view through Sunday, September 18. More info about 1053 Main Street Gallery and Flashman's and upcoming exhibitions at 1053MainGallery.com. Hi, this is Beth Sher, co-host of Playtime, alternate Tuesdays at 6 here on WIOX Roxbury. I'm also a member of the Open Eye Theater in Margaretville. I'm here to tell you about the First Ladies Coalition, a solo performance created by Ginger Grace about an ex-con and survivor of domestic violence who brings to life the wisdom and strength of four great First Ladies. The First Ladies Coalition at the Open Eye Theater on Main Street in Margaretville for only one performance this Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock. Tickets and more information at theopeneyetheater.org or 845-586-1660. 845-586-1660. I hope to see you there. Okay, you're listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable TV Channel 20 on the campus of SUNY Delhi at 107.5 FM, worldwide at WIOXradio.org, and on any mobile device, Radio FM. And this is from the forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane! How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. How have you been up to? Been uh, just doing a lot of programs, meeting with members. Um, 
But uh, I'm seeing more and more of the effects of this drought. We've had this moderate kind of drought and uh, a lot of color change here and there on trees. It's terrible. You know, a lot of fruit trees are suffering. I know that. Dogwoods are getting their butts whooped, Mm. you know, flowering dogwood at my place. I haven't been in the woods too much because I'm nursing an injury, unfortunately, but uh, that's that's all I've seen so far. But, yeah, some early leaf fall, some early foliage. Yeah, it could be pretty informative, too. tells you which trees are kind of going to early dormancy on your property. It gives you some sign that it might be undergoing stress. Something might be worth a second look. Yeah, water your trees, especially if they're not established or they're newly planted. I would water them. But um, tonight... We're going to be talking about forest vegetation management with Arbor Chem's Todd Hagenboo. And um, he's the regional manager and vegetation management specialist at Arbor Chem Products. He holds a degree in forest science from Penn State, 20 years experience. He's past president of Mountain Lake Vegetation Management Council, past chair of the Pinchot Chapter of Society of American Foresters. Duties include sales and service across the United States and utility right away roadside vegetation management, forest vegetation management programs, invasive plant and city municipal vegetation management programs. And Todd speaks at many continuing ed trainings throughout the year. And let me see if I can get Todd on. Todd, are you there? Yes, I am. All right. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And uh, where are you coming from? I'm sorry I missed that. Oh, where are you calling from? Uh, I live in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah, yeah so uh, I've had, uh, um, uh, we buy products from you. Uh, we have our Forest Saver program where we uh, manage vegetation on members' properties. Uh, and I thought I'd have you on to d- discuss kind of uh, the state of the uh, technology. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, you know, why would somebody want to manage vegetation on their property? Well, today it's it's so common to find invasive plants or interfering plants in a forest setting and or an old field setting. Um, Honestly, if I don't talk to a dozen people a week about invasive plants, I'd be surprised. Uh, And and, and so often uh, the reason we would manage those plants is so that we can have our native plants flourish, uh, you know, have appropriate habitat for the wildlife that's on the site and basically try to return the site back to the way it should be uh, rather than allow the invasives to run amok. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you said the, the way the site should be. Um, yeah, it's, we do a lot of consultations throughout the years, and uh, kind of uh, problem plants are one of the first things people notice on their property and the first things they have questions about. Whether they know it's good or bad or the effects it's having, what they do know is that uh, – they find it everywhere. It's getting into everything, um, and uh, some people like it. You know, it creates kind of these park-like forests. Some people um, see it as kind of an issue. Um, but uh, yeah, so what are um, what are common vegetation inju- uh, issues generally? Like before we get into the forest. Okay, so I mean large part of what I do is, is work with right-of-way managers. So that's state DOTs, utility right-of-way manager, foresters, uh, invasive plant managers. But the, 
the right-of-way piece is quite large and sometimes is kind of overlooked by the common person. Mm-hmm. Uh, utilizing, you know, a variety of techniques, you know, using an IBM approach uh, where you're taking mechanical means, chemical means, cultural means, biological means to manage those right-of-ways. And so often people, uh, you know, drive by these sites not even noticing that things are going on, that maybe a herbicide has been used in a site uh, to manage trees or weeds along a roadway. Uh, and, you know, and so often it's, it's necessary, especially in roadways for visibility and infrastructure maintenance on utility right-of-way. It's huge because uh, mechanical means alone on a utility right-of-way, we would have way more outages than we currently do uh, on most utility companies. Uh, utilization of herbicides allows us to select for the right plants on that right-of-way. In most cases, a right plant would be uh, low-growing herbaceous-type cover or low-growing shrubs. And, uh, you know, in, in that scenario, an oak tree or a red maple or uh, an ash tree or whatever it may be, is actually a weed uh, on the utility right-of-way because they have the ability to grow tall enough to come in contact with that power line and interrupt that service. So uh, it's a big deal. I mean, everybody is aware of the blackout that occurred 20 years ago or so, uh, and that was caused by vegetation uh, interruption on a transmission line. Yeah, you're you're talking like uh, critical infrastructure, like vines, just kind of herbaceous species that just make it difficult to get to some of these uh, utility boxes and things where you need to get to in an emergency, even um, fire hydrants, things like that. Um, Sure. Yeah, like you said, people just don't notice it. Right. Um, So, yeah, let's get into the forest. I mean, what I mentioned this, you mentioned this a little bit, and we talk about this on the the show a lot, kind of interfering forest vegetation. Native, uh, invasive plants, which aren't always, you know, non-native plants. Um, what's what's the kind of the story with interfering vegetation in forests from your Sure. So, you know, in the, in the mid-Atlantic region in the northeast, obviously there, there's many native plants that can be considered interfering. So maybe they have invasive qualities, but they're native and they prevent the ability of the forest or the, the overstory trees from seeding in, getting seedling establishment of the proper trees. And so, for example, hay-scented fern is a great example of that. Uh, Striped maple cover, you know, excessive beech cover, black birch cover uh, could be considered competing vegetation in a forest setting, all of which those species are native uh, to, to our region. Uh, but there are cases where we need to manage those plants because their their stocking levels are too high, or they just impede that regeneration on the forest floor. Yeah, and um, the deer don't browse them, right? Correct, correct. I mean, the deer basically, and I'm very familiar with parts of Pennsylvania where the hay-scented fern is so thick that uh, you know you're talking chest-high fern by the end of the summer. And that was that complex was created by excessive deer herds uh, that were in the 50s and the 60s, uh, and they basically ate all the hardwood regeneration and, and basically selected for the, the hay scented fern, and it continues today. Hey Todd, can we back up a second? This is Ryan again. Um, can you explain what you do at ArborChem and what ArborChem is? Sure, sure. So ArborChem is a 
uh, distributor of industrial herbicides and herbicide application equipment. So when I say industrial, that separates us from the turf and ornamental market and the agriculture market. So I only supply herbicides to the right-of-way industry, the forestry industry, uh, municipal-type folks, and invasive plant managers. Those would be the, the core customers that I have across the country. Okay. And, um, you know, what's what's something that you, I always ask this with people who are, you know, professionals and what they do. What's something you wish people knew um, about what you do the most that it, you feel is most misunderstood? I think that, uh, you know, there could be a misconception that the use of herbicides creates, you know, unsightly, um, uh, you know, destructive type of appearance in settings. And in reality, we're not. That's not the goal. Of the use of herbicide. It's it's to select for the right plant types. There are so many instances where we can be ultra selective with the herbicides we use, so that we can actually establish or release the plants that we we need on that site. So, in utility right away, that could be low-growing herbaceous cover that is actually pollinator habitat. In a forest setting, we could be taking out Japanese barberry in an understory to release uh, red oak seedlings that are trapped underneath, or we have a fern cover that's preventing sugar maples from establishing on the site. They're being suppressed under that hay scented fern. So it's a tool in the toolbox. Unfortunately, I know some folks have a, you know, a negative view on herbicides or pesticides in general, and um, it, it is a tool, it's a valuable tool, it really makes everyone's job easier and when we're managing woody vegetation it's almost impossible to rely on just strictly mechanical means alone because so many hardwood species have the ability to sprout and so what you're doing in many cases is you're only making those plants mad by cutting them and so they multiply mm. and the biomass actually increases and so if we can't control the root system of those plants we are being ineffective in our job of managing those uh, non-desirable plants on that site. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, you, you mentioned it quick before, this idea of IPM or integrated pest management. Um, right. Yeah, herbicide use being a tool uh, in a toolbox that has other, other methods in there, um, cultural, mechanical, manual removal even. Um, yeah, why, I, you probably explained this pretty good just now, but uh, in, an integrated approach to controlling management, if, if the issue is the root system, um, you can't just really uh, uproot the root system on a large scale or, or ground them up with kind of without disturbing the site, but you could, could use a targeted um, application of an herbicide um, right. to attack those roots. Yeah, I mean, I know the Catskills aren't overrun with plants like Alanthus, but uh, much of the Mid-Atlantic and parts of the Northeast have Alanthus trees running everywhere. So I come in and I remove 10 Alanthus trees, and within two years I have, you know, hundreds of Alanthus trees coming up off that root system. And uh, it's, it's impossible to manage plants like that without herbicides. Uh, invasives are the same way. I mean, so many of the invasives we have in forest understories, Japanese stillgrass, you know, you just, it just gets overrun. Uh, the whole understory gets filled with it. 
Japanese barberry, same thing, bush honeysuckle, privet. You know, there's a variety of invasives just depending on geography and setting and things like that that, um, you know, you know, buckthorn uh, might be more of an issue in your region than, than other parts of the regions that I work with. But uh, without herbicides, <laughs> it is a, a massive task to manage vegetation. Um, you know, there's efficiencies gained. There's economy to scale uh, by using herbicide compared to mechanical means. And in reality, uh, even though there's some negative hysteria around some products that we use today, uh, there's proof to show that they are safe. And if they're used according to the label, uh, there should be no health risk for the applicator or the landowner that's using those products. So, again, maybe that's a segue. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's it comes down to people, especially in the biological world, underestimating exponential growth. Um Herbicides only oh, aren't always needed, um, especially in the beginning. Especially if you know what is a might be a threat to your forest, might might be found in an area where you can easily remove it. Uh, but if you don't do anything about it, and it's a very aggressive, vigorous species, it can become out of control in a very short period of time, and your options for control narrow. Yes. And anybody that's ever used the weed wrench and tried to remove sizable invasive shrubs uh, understands after about uh, you know a week of doing that that maybe if they had opposition to, to herbicides leading up to that, they may consider it at that point. Well, Todd, why do you think there's so much hysteria surrounding chemicals, in your opinion? Well, I mean, you know, obviously Roundup in 2017 was put on the probable cancer list from IARC, which is the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Uh, in that probable category is, you know, glyphosate, of course, what's in Roundup, red meat, hot liquids, you know, which most of the time our hot teas and our coffees are in that category, and then working as a barber. So, I mean, when you think about that category itself, uh, it's not a known carcinogen, which things like alcohol and cigarettes and a variety of other things that people are exposed to on a daily basis is actually a known carcinogen. And then the EPA comes out and says this year, um, the e and I'm reading right from the EPA website, EPA scientists performed an independent evaluation of available data of glyphosate found that there is no risk or concern to human health for current uses of glyphosate. Glyphosate products used according to label directions do not result in risk to children or adults. And then I move down the screen here a bit. It says, no evidence that glyphosate causes cancer in humans. The agency concluded that glyphosate is not likely to be carcinogenic to humans. EPA considered a significantly, significantly more extensive and relevant database than the IR group uh, or International Agency for Research on Cancer. EPA's database includes studies submitted to support registration of glyphosate and studies EPA identified in open literature. And so their stance is that glyphosate does not cause cancer. And unfortunately, when IR came out and made that statement, the lawyer or the litigation group around the country jumped on it. Yeah. And it became every other commercial on TV for three or four years, it seemed like. 
And that's where people really started to get a fear of products like Roundup or glyphosate, which is a major tool in what we do in forestry vegetation management. I mean, I probably have a hundred different products, but in the average forest site today, we can get away with about four or five products, uh, glyphosate or Roundup, um, products like Garlon 3A, products like Garlon 4 Ultra with basil oil, maybe Escort if we're doing multiflora rows. Uh, you know, we get away with just a small group of herbicides that effectively control most of the plants that we're after out in that site. And uh, unfortunately, glyphosate uh, gets a bad rap for really, in my opinion, uh, based upon this documentation from the EPA, is, is false. So um, people are more than welcome to Google EPA and glyphosate, EPA, Roundup, and you will find exactly what I'm referring to. So I think it's um, I think it's very valuable that people educate themselves and not just go by what they what they see on TV uh, because you know there's just a lot of incorrect or insufficient information out there uh, and people can draw a lot of conclusions from it. Before I hand it back to Zane, I wanted to ask you um, about it just because it's in the media about neonics. Right. What's your opinion on that? I mean, we hear about this all the time. We use them at the cat. We meaning the Catskill Forest Association use them to uh, battle hemlock oleodelgid, whether it's imidacloprid or um, dinotefrin. So, do you have an opinion on that? Sure. Well, sure. I mean, and, and neonics have been widely used in in turf grass management for years to control grubs. Uh, that's where it probably is most widely used before it got into the forest setting to control a lot of plants or a lot of plants, a lot of insects. Uh, issues in forest settings. The one thing I find interesting is that a lot of these neonics are actually either injected or applied at the soil line of, of the plants that are being treated. Especially if they're being injected, there's really no potential for bees to come in contact uh, with those insecticides. So if that is the case where you're injecting product in the, into the uh, tree, Obviously, it goes up into the canopy of the tree and, and is, is systemic, and uh, insects that attack that tree could be damaged or controlled by that, which, whether it's spotted lanternfly or, you know, a variety, variety of other forest pest uh, insects out there, I doubt that you can have bees, um, you know, coming in contact with that type of application. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, just to hop on uh, your point about the, uh, uh, I guess, hysteria around uh, herbicides, glyphosate in particular, uh, my point that I keep coming back to just from my background is is uh, kind of what you hear on the media. They hyper-focus on the product, um, and they discount the uh, applicator, his knowledge, his experience, his judgment when it comes to applying these, and they discount whether the label was followed at all. These are questions that are almost never answered um, in these stories. Uh, well, and that's, that's a good point. Um, you know, in order to be a commercial pesticide applicator, you have to be licensed to do so, and which means you study lots of uh, documents and materials before you can actually take a test with, in the state of New York, it would be through the DEC, where I live in Pennsylvania, it's with the Department of Agriculture. And so that you have to show some sort of aptitude or knowledge base uh, in order to attain this license. 
And then there's a certain level of professionalism that has to be maintained because the Department of Agriculture or the DEC actually has representatives that will check on applicators. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, they need to get continuing education credits uh, either annually or biannually, you know, depending on the state that you live in or reside in. Uh, there's a certain amount of credits that need to be attained in a period of time. And so that means they, they don't just take the test once, you know, study materials, take the test, and they're done, and then they go out and do whatever they want. They have to come back generally annually and get additional training, uh, either through extension or folks like myself that might put a meeting on. And that keeps the folks up to date on what's going on uh, and keeps educating those folks on the proper use of those products. Um, you know, so I think, honestly, we run into more issues with, <laughs> I hate to say it, but you can buy most of the products that I sell or a good amount of them. You can buy them at the Lowe's or the Home Depot, maybe in a little different format than what a commercial applicator would use. But you can basically get a lot of the same active ingredients. Uh, I doubt I don't doubt it, but I, I would say that very few people, and I'm not saying all do this, but very few, read that label in its entirety mm. and understand the full extent of that label and use it appropriately with the label, um, whether it's following personal protective equipment requirements, uh, you know, usage rates, do not, you know, do not use in this scenario type statements. Uh, so uh, it's not the knock. The, the common landowner or anything, it's but it is commonplace for people to go buy something at a hardware store and and maybe just uh, let's just see what this does and then we'll figure out uh, if it doesn't work what we'll read the label afterwards. Yeah. So, and yeah, that's where a guy like you comes in to have that knowledge and experience and advice because um, you've been a great help to us in uh, implementing our program. Yes, appreciate that. Um, so I guess we can switch gears and, uh, say I'm a landowner and I have an interfering vegetation issue in my forest. Um, what, what can I realistically expect, um, for control? What kind of goals can I reach, um, as a, as a uh, landowner, if I want to start to implement a plan, what are kind of three things that I can possibly hope that will happen? (laughs) I mean, it's it's like anything in life. There's a lot of variables to consider. I mean, what are we legitimately trying to manage? Do we have a uh, if we have 20 acres of woodland, we have uh, you know five percent of the woodland covered in multiflora rose? I can basically tell you that you know if you follow the instructions I give you and, and use the products that I suggest at the rates that I suggest, that you'll be able to effectively control that multiflora rose but if your property is completely overrun with autumn olive bush honeysuckle uh multiflora rose mixed in and privet and it's a it's a jungle uh i'm going to suggest at that point that you may want to bring a commercial forestry applicator in uh, that has the appropriate equipment and the wherewithal and the knowledge base to go ahead and try to take something of that magnitude on um, you know, so it, it, it just depends, you know, it depends. I, I mean, I'll set those expectations based upon the picture that someone pays for me. 
If, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Tonight's topic is forest vegetation management with Arbor Thames' Todd Hagenboo. Todd, um, I got another example to add on to Zane's. Sam, a landowner, and in the Catskill Mountains, below about 1,200 feet in elevation, you run into stilt grass. Above that, generally speaking, it's hay-scented, maybe New York fern. What do you do in that situation? You know, we have a lot of members. Catskill Forest Association has a lot of members with stilt grass problems. What, sure. what would you do? Recommend? Well, it, the most common, and and let me preface this by saying that in the state of New York, if you're targeting targeting an individual plant, that plant needs to be on the label of the product that you are using. And if it is not on there, you need to have a two double E supplemental label specifically specifically for that plant, stating that that herbicide works on that plant. And why I say that is because um, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I'm at, and many other states that I work with, as long as the use site is on the label, we can utilize whatever product we feel will be uh, effective or has been proven to be effective historically on that plant. It doesn't have to be on the label necessarily that it controls that plant. So I want to start with that so that I don't step on my own toes and prescribe something and then find out it doesn't have uh, that plant on the label. Okay. Yeah, and you can so, search that on New York State, that PADS, nice PADS, yes, P-A-D-S, to search if, you, if it's on the label. I just wanted to make that point, too. It, even in, on my website, I actually have the standard EPA label that's the, the federal registration for the whole country, and then I also have the New York label, which is just an abridge or, or an update on that federal label, so to speak. So what I normally prescribe for stilt grass is a combination of Roundup and Oust. Uh, Roundup at, you know, if I'm out there mid-season and I've already got established stilt grass, you know, I have the Roundup in the tank to kind of control what is present at that time as opposed to emergent-type herbicide. And then the ALF has a residual effect, a soil-active effect, where it will control the seed that is in the soil. Um, many guys or many applicators, and I can't say just guys, ladies, in the mid-Atlantic region will apply out sometimes early in the year, say in March or April, once the ground is thawed, on sites where they know that they have complete coverage of stilt grass, or at least they've identified the areas where the stilt grass have been historically, and they'll put that out down before the stilt grass even emerges for that year, as stilt grass is an annual weed and uh, it drops seed and probably has five to seven years of viability in the soil. Mm. So if you just go with post-emergent chemistries like Roundup, so to speak, um, you would need to come back for quite a few years after that to continuously treat that site to eliminate that new crop of stilt grass that would come in each year. Whereas if I use that soil residual along with it, uh, I can prevent that at least for a few seasons, I can prevent that stilt grass from coming in. And hopefully, in, in most cases, the, the objective is to establish uh, hardwood seedlings on that site, and hopefully you don't your deer population isn't excessive uh, to do damage to whatever it is you're trying to grow in place of that invasive plant. Todd, uh, can we just uh, back up and, and define those terms? Um, what is it, post-emergent and pre-emergent herbicides? Sure. So a post-emergent herbicide would mean that it's applied to actively 
growing green plants uh, that have emerged from the ground. Uh, and that could, that, that's a broad ranging thing. So you could say that's weeds that just emerged this year. Uh, so maybe in June you go out and you have stokegrass and you apply to the grass that's growing currently. Uh, same thing can apply to brush, you know, if you're treating autumn olive in an old field succession scenario. Uh, that would, we most cases use post-emergent herbicides to control those plants. Pre-emergent herbicides are designed to control weeds in the seed stage. So you can, you can go year after year on many sites to just use post-emergent chemistry, and if there's a seed bank of invasive plants there, uh, you cannot expect to just manage one year with post-emergent chemistry, come back the next year and say, okay, why do I have weeds again this year? You need to address that seed source. And if you have pre-emergent chemistry in the mix, like an oust, like potentially, we'll say some other ones that have been used in our area, pendulum, proclips, and things like that that have pre-emergent nature to them, um, they can effectively control that seed source. Yeah, um, yeah. So especially for plants like uh, stiltgrass, um, and I think also garlic mustard, who have uh, very long seed banks, um, your goal it sounds like isn't really eradication. You don't want to completely wipe out uh, this interfering vegetation on this site. You want to suppress it so that other native vegetation can kind of regain their competitive advantage and regenerate. Um, it sounds like is what you're saying. Right, and, and there are scenarios where we can use other selective chemistries, and of course we'd have to go back to that label disclaimer that I said that that plant has to be on there. But there are chemistries out there that are designed to control only grass but do not harm broadleaf weeds, which is a complete opposite of something like 2,4-D that would be used in a lawn to control broadleaf weeds and not harm grass. Um, and there's a variety of different names out there, clefidem, cefoxidem, or some active names, active ingredient names. But, um, you know, again, I would have to reference a label in the state of New York and look at, uh, I doubt you would see stilt grass on most of those labels. Todd, so yeah. there's some limiting factors with uh, what you can use and where in the state of New York. And I, I generally have to do a little bit of my own research when I'm talking to somebody uh, specifically from New York to make sure I don't prescribe something that isn't uh, according to label or has that plant that's the target on the, on the label itself. Todd, before we take a break, um, I wanted to ask you, how do some of these herbicides kill the plant and they're not toxic to, say, an animal or an insect? How does that, oh, how does that occur? Excellent question. And I, and I like to answer that one just to show the innate, the innate safety of, let's say, herbicides compared to some of the other pesticides out there. So just, just to really back this thing up, the pesticides is the big umbrella, right? So pesticides include insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, rodenticides, mammalianicides, and the list goes on. Anything that will kill a pest and a herbicide is a pesticide. An insecticide is a pesticide. A fungicide is a pesticide. They control different types of pests. Herbicides in general, the way it works is they have what's called a mode of action or a site of action in a plant. So site of action means 
some products are designed to interrupt the photosynthetic process. Some products may be designed to uh, interrupt root establishment. Some products may be designed to uh, interrupt amino acid synthesis in a plant. So they're, what they are are naturally, they're blocking naturally occurring processes within the plant. And not all herbicides have the same uh, mode of action in a plant. So um, that, in my opinion, makes it somewhat safer than, say, something like an insecticide when it comes to human exposure to it. And, that, and why I say that is there is no process in a plant that happens in a human being, whereas there are some processes in an insect that happen in a human being. Mm. And so it's the reason they would ask you to vacate your house maybe when they're doing uh, a pest management operation within your home. Um, you know, in a forest setting, it may be you need to allow for it to dry or there's some, you know, reentry interval might be an hour or two or whatever, depending on the label. So um, does that answer the question? Yes, sir. Yeah, no, that definitely does. Um, I think uh, it's important to uh, make that, that, you know, decipher the difference. Um, we're going to take a break, Todd. Up next, I want to ask you, uh, I know Zane's got some more questions. I also want to ask and define toxicity and uh, if you're just tuning in you're listening to from the forest tonight's topic is forest vegetation management with arbor chems todd higginboo
All right, that's Queen. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is forest vegetation management with Arbor Chem's Todd Hagenboo. And, um, yeah, toxicity, Todd. How would you define this term that is thrown around all the time? Something is toxic, it's going to kill us, or it's not going to kill us? People can be toxic. I never heard about that. You are toxic. Yeah. You're a toxic. You hear that? Me looking at you, yeah. I feel poisoned. <laughs> you know, this is terrible. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Come on. yeah how would you do it? <laughs> uh, so the way they measure toxicity is uh, what they call LD50 or LC50. And what that means is that's the lethal dose to kill 50% of the test population. And the test population is not humans. It's either mice or rats. And so the way they measure it is what is the number you need to reach on a milligram per basis compared to kilogram of body weight. Most herbicides that I deal with are over 3,000 milligram per kilogram. The higher the number, the safer the product is. The lower, the more toxic something is. Mm. So, for example, uh, things like caffeine, nicotine, aspirin, bleach, a variety of things that we're exposed to, you know, almost on a daily basis, are more toxic on an acute level, on a, a, an individual, single uh, situation exposure are more toxic than things like glyphosate that are over 5,000 milligram per kilogram. What uh, the when hell? It comes to exposure. Wait a second. Back up a second. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying like aspirin and coffee? Yes. Um, more like the the caffeine in the coffee. Right, okay. right. Right, right. Amazing. So the way right. of say, saying that is that it takes, le- if a something has a low LD50 rating, it means that it, is required it's more less of that sub- substance in order to uh, uh, kill you and, or inflict harm. That is correct. So the lower the number, the more toxic. The higher the number, the less toxic. Yeah, I mean, when you put it in context, you know, like if I say this, Zane, 5,000 parts per million, you're like, of what? <laughs> like what you don't know what it means, you know? I just cut 30 cords of wood. Well, that would be a lot. But it, you don't know... Like what the context is, so right. I, you know I, I appreciate that you compared it to something that people know what it means, you know. And the, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and this is what I always tell people is that I mean this is an ancient kind of principle in, in toxicology is that the dose makes the poison. Something is poisonous um, because not because what a substance is inherently, it's just how much of it is being introduced. How much of the water? How much of your body is comprised of water? What is it like, fifty, sixty percent, something like that? Yeah, More? Might be higher. I think. I don't know. What What is a lethal dose of water if it's ingested? I have no I, idea. Yeah, I, don't, I don't people know. drown every day, and and that is a lethal dose of water. It yeah. fills their lungs. It's a lethal dose. So oh, yeah. there is a maximum level in which water you can intake before it's too much. So, uh, you know, you could put things in perspective. You know, I, I like in the um, a very good example of not putting things in perspective is a thing called Proposition 65, which is out of California. And what Proposition 65 is is a statement 
about products that potentially could cause cancer. I mean, California has gone as far as saying that wood chips potentially can cause cancer. It's on the Proposition 65 list. What is their problem? Like, what? What is the? Why do you? Th- why have they gone this way? Um, I don't want to. I don't want to lean any one way in political affiliation, but you can surmise for yourself why. Why this? Well, but um, so I go ahead. Sorry, I, I cut really you off. I can't tell yeah. you, but everything you buy today from Amazon that comes in a package and on a little plastic wrapper, you'll see Proposition 65, and it'll say that the state of California has found out that something in this product potentially causes cancer. What does that even mean, potentially, and how do they know, and who's doing the study? Well, I mean, do you know the answers to these? What? There's no, there's yeah. no uh, listing as to how much exposure, what product it is. Um, you know, how much you could talk about artificial sweeteners, you know, they talk about a lot of things that, oh, you would need to drink, you know, 75 Diet Cokes a day, you know, to get to a level and consistently for the next 10 years, you know, to get to a level that potentially could cause it. I'm, I'm, and I'm just being facetious. I don't right. know what the exact number is, but, you know, it could be more than that, uh, so, you know because they don't give you a definitive exposure rate yeah. to, to give you any it's, sort of bearing to, to, is that reality? That's not reality. Nobody has those kind of exposure rates. Yeah, while, the, oh. while there may be evidence for, say, wood chips causing cancer or wood dust, um, what, do, what do people do with that information? That's, that's kind of my concern. Is it just the fact that that label is on there or that is out there? in the uh, public conscious, but what, what do people do with that, you know, if there's no guidance or no uh, um, context for it, you know? Yeah, it's, it, you really do have to educate yourself, and, you know, extrapolating on a little bit of information is, is a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's, if I have anything to say about, you know, science and understanding of things, uh, They'll take just a tidbit of information and, and make a giant conclusion from that. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, we have a little bit of the show left here, but I, I want to kind of a deep dive into a particular product that it seems to be on everybody's uh, uh, mind lately. Um, in New York State. In New York State in particular. <laughs> um, yeah, glyphosate's uh, history and its use. And so I'll just say this a little bit here. So. For my research, glyphosate was introduced in 1974 under the trade name of Roundup. It was used primarily for agriculture, but also forestry, lawn, and garden. Uh, By 2001, it was the most widely used herbicide in the U.S. and possibly the world. Um, So a couple questions to paint a picture. Like, what makes glyphosate so effective? What's its mode of action? Um, And how did it change agriculture you know when you think about roundup ready crops how did that really change the game sure Um, well glyphosate I think the biggest thing to take away from glyphosate is that it is non-selective meaning it can control broadleaves and grasses and when I say broadleaves that means it can control a variety of brush as well at the right rates so it's controlled species list is enormous compared to the average herbicide. There is, I mean, yes, there are many things that glyphosate will not control, but the list is small in comparison 
to a lot of other products. And so that's it. I mean, it's so broad spectrum. It's a systemic herbicide, so it, it translocates through the tree or the plant into the root system so it completely controls that plant. And that's, that's what makes it so valuable. I believe it's an amino acid inhibitor. I'd have to take a look. I'm pretty sure that's what it's in. But that's, that's here nor there. I think it's more important to understand that it's a post-emergent, broad-spectrum, uh, pre, you know, uh, not pre-emergent, post-emergent herbicide that controls uh, grasses and broadleaves and brush. So it, uh, it just has a lot of uses. And uh, it's easy to use. Uh, it's a product that it just took off. I mean, when it, when it came on the market and uh, was, you know, found to be very easy to use and was so effective on so many different plants, uh, became the go-to, you know, for homeowners that would want to kill weeds in the cracks and crevices in their driveway, um, you know, kill a couple poison ivy plants in the backyard, whatever. Uh, it kind of fit the bill for a lot of different things, and that's why it, it became so popular so quickly you know, when it comes to the um, Roundup Ready crops, I mean, that's when the usage of glyphosate in the world, like, went off the charts. I mean, it, it worldwide, it went up like 500 times in about a five-year period uh, in, its, in its global usage. Because when you could take and genetically modify corn and then soybeans and other uh, crops and make them resistant to glyphosate, it made managing all those other weeds that compete with that plant very easy. And it goes back to what I just said. It's such a broad-spectrum type herbicide, which is another whole story I know we don't have time for, it, but then it also led to weed resistance because we relied strictly on one active ingredient to manage all these plants. And if they were an annual plant that could multiply and produce a lot of seed quickly, uh, many, many plants became resistant. Mare's tail, giant ragweed, and a variety of other plants became resistant to glyphosate very quickly. Yeah, so um, that's my thinking is that the issue with it is not that merely it exists and it's it's used. It's that it's overused uh, globally. Right. Uh, when there's other methods that uh, may be a little bit more labor and time intensive but can be effective. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and there are... Certainly, there's always new chemistries within the agricultural community or the agriculture market that I think will, you know, will will displace it over time. You know, I, but not in the current time being for the cost. You know, the cost-benefit analysis is incredible compared to most uh, products that are available out there. Uh, for what you get, for what you pay, and the ability to control of a wide variety of plants, uh, that's why its usage is so um, so wide-ranging. Do you think um, people's negative perception of chemicals comes from any kind of over-usage in the past? Or, I mean, because, you know, before I was born in 81, so I was always told, and I don't know if it's true, that people overuse chemicals in the 50s through the 80s. Is, is that true? Is there any merit to that? What do you think? I, I think that could be. I mean, it, Prior to 1972, there was no EPA, and all these products that we use today, any any commercial pesticide today is registered with the EPA and has an EPA registration number associated with it, uh, so, which means that they have the approval of the EPA for the use of this product. 
And most manufacturers today, if they discover a new molecule in their discovery lab, they, I mean, they could literally go through thousands of potential molecules, and there's a process to bring a new product uh, to the marketplace, and it's like six or seven stages. Most of the time, by the time they get to the third stage with something they, they see as a promise, as a, let's say, a herbicide, they find out that it has some sort of uh, negative environmental impact, and they scuttle the whole process. So whatever money they had invested up until that point trying to discover a new uh, product they could bring to market, they, they they just crush it right there, and they start over looking for something else. Mm-hmm. And so most of your manufacturers today are very cognizant of what they need to bring to the EPA. They need to have it be a slam dunk because the amount of money they invest to bring this stuff to market uh, is just so exorbitant that if they if they have a failure when they get to the EPA, that it's just, I mean, it just sets them back for years and years. And, and one of the general trends that I've seen, I've been at this 28 years, not 20 years, sorry about that, but uh, 28 years, is that products, the newer products on the market today are used at rates of ounces per acre. And when I say ounces, what I mean by that is, Let's say I have a carrier volume of water of 25 gallons that I'm going to apply to an acre, and I'm going to put a herbicide into that 25 gallons. I might be putting 7 to 10 ounces of a product into that 25 gallons of water, and that's all I'm applying to that acre. So it's largely water uh, that's being applied with a small percentage of herbicide going on that acre. So... uh, that's kind of the trend in, is to, to be able to do more with less and use less herbicide uh, to effectively control the plants that we're, we're after out there. Well, unfortunately, Todd, uh, we are out of time, believe it or not. And I uh, just wanted to thank you for coming on From the Forest tonight. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for taking the time and, uh, you know, have a good rest of your week and uh, take care. Can I drop my uh, website just in case anybody wants to get in touch with us? Absolutely. Uh, it's arborchem.com, A-R-B-O-R-C-H-E-M.com. And okay. thank you again. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time, and have a good night. And uh, if you missed From the Forest, that was uh, Tad Hagenboo from Arborchem. And that's all the time we have. Good night, everyone. Good night. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay Did appear upon his mantle 
shining the face of one so dear Who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year When the wildflowers did bloom in the forest She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name And then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games In an old house on a hillside in some forgotten town Where the river runs down from the forest With a mighty roar the big jet soars above the canyon streets And the con men con but life goes on for the city never sleeps And to 